Hello everyone, welcome to yet another episode of the Articulator Podcast. Uh, my name is Kari and I'm here in the studio today with Jocelyn and Suhan. Hi, I'm Jocelyn. Hi, I'm Suhan. And we're here today to talk about 448, which was the production by Emergency Stairs that ran at the Hawaii Festival of Arts at the Esplanade from February 19th to 23rd. So this was kind of like the finale, I think, <laughs> in Xiaoyi's, um, Liu Xiaoyi, who is the artistic director of Emergency Stairs. He's been doing a trilogy of work at um, the Hawaii Festival, beginning with Offending the Audience, which was a Peter Hanke play um, that was a couple of years ago. And then last year, it was Einstein in the Car Park, which was a take on Robert Wilson and Philip Glass's Einstein on the Beach. And this year, we have 448, which, is, which took Sarah Kane's 4.48 psychosis as a sort of leaping off point. And I think with all three works, he never says it's an adaptation or a re- reinterpretation. He always kind of sets his work adjacent to the previous production as kind of its own creature. And yeah. And also, I guess, Esplanade, whether on hindsight or whether it's part of the framing from the beginning, they've framed it as a post-dramatic series of all three productions. So uh, that's also something interesting to unpack. What is this notion of post-dramatic and its relationship to Singaporean theatre and the scene here? Um, yeah. yeah, and I think a lot, I think this was quite contentious to some people who felt that is this a is is this a label that says oh he's pioneering post dramatic work in Singapore which is which is, I mean not the case but but he definitely does a, a kind of, interesting, exploration of what, perhaps he perceives to be, seminal classical, um, post dramatic, work, and and, I think he's particularly interested in the work's relationship with its audience and and how to provoke or not provoke but go beyond provocation (laughs) maybe it's one of his attempts so I think Justin you saw offending the audience uh, a couple years back what was your experience with that? I did so that was well I wasn't I wasn't offended (laughs) 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 Um, I quite liked it I quite enjoyed the experience uh, I mean, I think simply because I was going in with quite a playful mindset and it was quite... Uh, it did not actually feel to me like it was setting out to offend because it, well, it seemed a pretty welcoming space. Like, people could do whatever they wanted in the space. They could... There's even, like, food at some points, you know, and people could, like, play with things, play with each other. So, um, it was, I guess a different kind of theatrical experience to some people, maybe. Um, but yeah, like you said, not entirely not entirely groundbreaking lah, in, that, in that sense. Can uh, you talk a little bit about how the experience was like? I've heard a little, bu- a little bit about it. but So it takes place in a black box mm. and the audience comes in and instead of sitting at the audience seats, they actually occupy the they, stage. They can be anywhere they want in the space. Yeah, so the seats were initially, the seats were not pulled out, so the seats were retracted. Were retracted. And uh, 
yeah, so audience was anywhere in the space. Uh, there was uh, the cast were actually backstage, kind of having a conversation, and that was live fed into the uh, on screens in the black box, so the audience could see the cast and hear the cast having having that conversation, which was also simultaneously being. So they were they were conversing in Mandarin, and there was a live uh, translation going on at the same time. So there were actually many things going on, and uh, the conversation was quite funny. Uh, I mean, it was pretty much they were bantering, uh, kind of also, I guess, questioning some of the, the ideas that, that Liu Xiaoyi was working with, you know, questioning relationship with the audience, things like that, right? Uh, so my memory may be, be a bit hazy because it was two years ago. Um, but yeah, and then, like I said, it was really very free and easy. But halfway through the performance, they started to pull out the seats. And that took a very, very long time. So I think that was what may have gotten some people <laughs> offended. Just to give us a sense, how long was the duration uh, of the, the entire that, performance that the time? The entire performance, about, I think, I think, and I may be wrong, but I think it was about one and a half hours. Yeah, I think both Einstein and Offending Audience about one and a half hours. Um, I think in the original text, I mean, so, so what Xiaoyi... I didn't see it either, but I, I, I feel like he tries to subvert again. Um, so the original text does subvert the tropes of what an audience is expected to do. They want to be entertained when they go into a play and now they're berated by the actors um, for being there. And then here he's doing another subversion of that subversion. And, and the same thing happens with Einstein in the car park as well, where he initially makes the connection to... Einstein on the beach quite opaque um, so, so I think each year he kind of wrestles with his relationship with the previous work so offending the audience is very explicit he's re responding to Peter Hanke's text the, or, or, or production and then the second one he makes it very opaque if you didn't get any of the references you would think it was a show about Einstein and relativity and he tends to, to like to play with the program booklet uh, make it full of questions give you a glossary of seemingly relevant slash irrelevant words. And so he's always playing with the little kind of um, the etiquettes or the structures of spectatorship, the expectations that go around a piece. And, and I think coming to 448, which is what we had to talk about, I guess, after giving kind of some context, um, this felt the most intimate by far of, of all three works, all of which... Um, the participation was scaffolded very differently. In terms of car park, we were, we were just allowed to roam the entire car park for about one and a half hours, trying to catch glimpses of the two performers as they made their way around a very cavernous, very brutalist space and, you know, kind of trying to explore hidden corners or explore hidden audio or, or spots of light or props. And, and, and that was kind of an unsupervised... Uh, free flow as well. And here for 448, the moment you arrive at the venue, I think both Suhan and I are holding on to the very beautifully crafted mm -hmm. work. I was thinking of it as a workbook. <laughs> <laughs> it is an exercise book. An exercise yeah. book. Or a jotta book. That you're given. Um, and you the journey is kind of shaped by the reading and following of instructions that are given progressively through the book. So some people have likened it to like a choose-your-own-adventure novel where you read and you choose, then you flip to the certain page and follow the instructions. And 
eventually the experience is that you make your way through the entire book but different sections at each time and I guess one of the scaffolding questions that is very important from the very beginning that would determine your journey is basically you are asked be- to choose between three options uh, whether you love yourself whether you hate yourself right and the third, undecided. undecided. So, which option do you choose? And depending on which option you decide upon, you will be directed to a particular section of the book that would lead you on a different journey from the rest of the people. But eventually, somehow another, another, the whole journey is designed in a way so that you go through all three experiences just in different sequences. In different orders, yeah. I chose undecided. I also chose. Undecided, I and know, I also <laughs> to, and and also like like myself and my younger self in the past, when I was confronted with the choose your own adventure book, I would put my finger in the book <laughs> and then try to see where the path led, which made me realize, oh, we're going to go through all three. So that I don't know if there was a, a I mean, that was the decision I made uh-huh. to kind of peek ahead. Other people very staunchly refused to, to. I kind of wish I did yeah. because I didn't know where it was going to and I didn't know whether I was going to get the entire experience. And most importantly, I didn't know whether after the book experience ended, was there something more? Mm. So I kept, in, in, on hindsight, I kept rushing ahead uh, and I didn't spend and invest enough time in each exercise, which was really introspective and personal. So I've heard of people who went through the entire experience in like three hours I think I finished it within two hours. So unfortunate for me. I, I felt like I didn't mm. did invest enough uh, because I was constantly looking for what's going to happen next. Yeah, it's, it's interesting this, this notion of like, oh, I need to invest for the full four hours. I, I feel like that's part of the transaction of a, of, a, of a participatory work that you feel you can only derive the greatest... I think it also comes from can we talk at this point about the ticket price okay yes we can (laughs) so it's basically how much again $62 for a solo uh, journey in a way we didn't know we were getting ourselves into a solo journey but we do know that it's a solo performance by Xiao Yi and it takes place in a whiskey bar uh, that is located in the Esplanade um, so honestly, that was a very big deterrent in the beginning. I, I've never seen Xiaoyi's performances before. This was the first time. Um, so I didn't enter the piece with any baggage of having experience uh, offending the audience or Einstein in the car park. But at the same time, I felt like I was, I, I was made to invest like monetarily yeah. in something that I wasn't quite sure what it was going to be about because mm. the blurb was a little bit opaque and we didn't really know what experience we were getting ourselves involved in. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I didn't know if you felt the same way with regards to the ticket price. It's an anomaly for Singapore for a solo piece in mm. an unconventional site-specific place to be charging that amount. Yeah, and I think because it, it depends so much on what you make of your own participation in the work, I find that oh, it can be really hard to critique the piece because then why have the fault rest with you, you know? So you blame yourself for investing this amount of money and then not having the wherewithal. Maybe you're not an experienced or, or, or seasoned kind of participatory work goer and you don't know how to scaffold your own experience. Then whose fault 
does it lie with? And also, what do we expect when we, when we invest this kind of money into uh, a performance? And I think before the show, I was also talking to another friend of mine who went about investments of time. So what's also interesting about this piece, and I think in a lot of Xiaoyi's work, he really um, wants the audience to derive their own interpretation and their own engagement with all of his pieces on their own terms. So prior to the actual event of the show, he actually invites audience members of 448 to email him in and take part in some sort of exchange. So I emailed him, I think, in January, so relatively early on, and I would get dispatches from behind the scenes as he was rehearsing by himself for the work, photographs, um, examples of exercises that his collaborators, um, lighting designer Wan Wen and sound designer Darren, had set for him, and just little glances into his inner life. And then these correspondences got incredibly intimate, like more and more intimate. But I couldn't quite tell if the person L, who was sending me these dispatches, was Xiao Yi or L was a persona that he had developed. Mm -hmm. And so it was this like transgressive moment where I was like, oh, I don't know if I'm getting a glimpse into his inner life. And for me, I think what I derived the greatest kind of meaning from this work was the, actually the exchanges I had with L prior to the performance event. And it set up the whole frame of my encounter because I thought, he's writing me all these intimate letters. What happens when I respond to one? So I sent him a few questions and then he replied. And I was like, oh, so you can have an exchange with him. Mm -hmm. But I think other people's experiences were not just quite to, the same. Yeah. Just, yeah. To, just to give us an idea, how often were the emails? And uh, yeah. Yeah, they started out quite gradual. I think once a week. And then as the show date approached, they would get more and more frequent. Like maybe once every three days, then once every two days, then every day. Um, and I think during the show, he was he would continue to send you emails, um, little fragments of, of his emotional landscape or his past, some dreamscape. Um, the personal email, from what I understand, happens three days before the show. So three days before the show, you get a specific personal email to your name. It's like, previously it was, hi, somebody else, yes. some, somebody else. But three days before the show, it's choreographed in a way. Yes. And those emails were timed to be sent out at 4.48 a.m. in the morning. Yeah. Yeah, so you will wake up and it's the first thing in your inbox. Yeah. That was also a deliberate strategy in a way. But as it got later, there were some that came at 4.48 p.m. though. Yeah. So quite interesting. And I think, yeah, so I think I joined the email list pretty late at the point when they were already sending the emails every day. I was already receiving emails every day. And at that point, it was pretty, it was very cryptic and kind of addressing a general or a crowd, right? So I did not, I was not aware or I didn't feel like I could reply or like I, yeah. So I, it's interesting to hear that, uh, like, Corey, you actually managed to have some exchanges with him. Lah. Yeah, and, and, independent of, you know, the general kind of, what I think of a mailing list kind of email that is sent out. And I think that's also another kind of point of questioning about the work, is, which is people don't think to respond to general emails. It think, makes them think of a mass marketing kind of strategy to the entire audience. And they kind of take them as, as such, as reading material. And I wonder if anyone without prompting would have reached out to him, and I, I, I don't know if that's part of the structure of the piece that he's kind of 
playing with mm -hmm. and how effective it is to to because for me I, I was really affected by those exchanges and then I and and one of the things about participatory work is that it it kind of thrives on that that individual experience like that narcissistic <laughs> experience of the participation that this is your own singular experience that is unique from everyone else's and the moment I realized that he was also emailing other people I felt slightly jealous <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, I'm not having this narcissistic, singular, personal, tailor-made, bespoke experience, which is part of the kind of consumer-oriented, like, yeah. commercial idea behind Immersive. Yeah. Everybody goes to Punch Drunk, and they want the one-on-ones, and they fight to get the one-on-ones. Yeah. So it's that desire for that exclusive engagement. Exactly. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. I think, uh, jumping on that, uh, it wasn't intended that way, I think. Um, but so one uh, for part of the or, or part of the premise of the the performance is that uh, Liu Xiaoyi himself is in a private room in the whiskey bar, right? Uh, and audience members or participants could be going in and out at any point. So there was a point where I happened to be alone in the in the bar with him. So I I thought I that was a moment that I really appreciated. Actually, I think a little bit like like Corey's yeah. kind of personal performance <laughs> thing and yeah so the moment when I sat um, across from him and, and we had actually quite a long period of eye contact um, just alone in the bar that was just something that was very visceral um, I think it's also because we chose the undecided path yes. that would yes. bring us to, to the, the room, room to encounter Xiao Yi first yeah, pretty early yes. unlike the rest of the other decisions and for me it was actually detrimental because a large part of the experience with him was okay so he's in a secret room inside a whiskey bar and you get an indication to enter the space and the performance starts at 6pm when the sun is still up and it ends around 11 when it's like late night in Esplanade. And the landscape of Esplanade and the people going in and out of Esplanade actually changes. And the density of people in the mall and also in the bar also changes. So in the beginning, it was very sparse. And I was in one of the first few in the room. And part of the gesture that Xiao Yi performs is besides sitting across of you and looking into your eyes, he also lays out personal objects gradually over the duration of the, uh, of the installation, of installation, performance, <laughs> I would say. Sorry. <laughs> it is an installation. It is an installation. Yeah. So he lays out objects one by one and he writes a post-it and he pastes, like, attach it to each individual object. So when I was there, the table was empty. Yeah. So I didn't get to see any objects oh, at all. I just realised this as well. There were only two or three objects on the table. Yeah, and I, I didn't know that I was supposed to sit across from him. Uh, I think that message got lost because it was on a it was on kind of a board, but a yeah. lot of people didn't actually see that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And part of the reason is I'm very cautious as also a performer artist to be cannibalising the performer yeah. in a way. So I went, even when I sat across from him, the people were saying like, oh, look into his eyes, look into his eyes. And that, that, that's the moment, that's the moment. <laughs> oh <my laughs> and, and I realised that, no, I don't really want to look into his eyes at that moment because yeah. I'm taking, in, in my understanding of it, is taking energy away from him. Yeah. Uh, so I focused on the objects itself it, and then I left after a while. Yeah, I, I actually couldn't bear to look at him. Because I think outside of this, we've collaborated on things before, we worked together, and it just felt that this was a different person. Yet it came, like, it felt like there were two layers, two, like, translucent personas on stage. And I just could not bear to associate this kind of 
performing persona with Xiaoyu, the person mm-hmm. that I, I work with or whose work I'm familiar with. But and I, I also think about the, the what, I'm so curious, like what, he, he often is very oblique about what he wants people to get from his work. He's like, it's up to you what you want to receive from it. But then I also wonder how that bleeds into the structuring of the event where people are unclear, oh, do I, do I, do I sit down? Like, wh- do I, am I supposed to do this now? You know, and that becomes very vague as it trickles down from that, not, not lack of intent, because he might have an intent for us, you know, what he wants to experience, but well, it, that vagueness sort of trickles down, I feel. What yeah. I found maybe a little bit of an issue uh, that perhaps in further development and more time that could be resolved is that some of the, in- that the instructions were given from the book itself and some of the instructions were external to the book itself. Yes. So when mm-hmm. I found when the instruction departed from the book or is external to the book, like a clue on an envelope where we are supposed to find an external easel, uh, then it takes away from this really introspective experience that I'm engaging mm. with in the book. Uh, and that for me took, uh, detracted from the experience. And it was uneven in terms of its pacing because of that. Yeah. Uh, because some moments I'm engaging with objects and things exterior to the book. And a lot of times I'm asked and demanded to be very, very attentive and pay attention to the book itself and text yeah. in the book. Yeah. yeah, I know what you mean. And actually, this is something I wanted to raise earlier. It reminded me a lot of um, Han Shemay's Missing the City of Lost Things, which took place at the beginning of last year. Um, her inspiration and leaping off point was quite different. She attended um, a workshop called The the Automated Workshop by Christoph, uh, Christoph Meyerhans and Anne Hampton in Hong Kong. And it was a way of thinking of a workshop where only the participants are present and they kind of self-facilitate or facilitators... Um, give them instructions through other means. And so in, in the City of Lost Things, you are asked to um, kind of make have, have some sort of closure or revisit a connection with a place or a person from your past. And likewise, they have instructions that come to you by text. You also have headphones that you're listening to, stories. And then you also have a little suitcase of objects that have other clues and instructions on them. And so it's also a very kind of... It's also a very introspective experience where you are really caught in your own exercises. And then when you would get a text message from the facilitator, it would kind of break you out of this reverie. And it, it reminded me a bit of, of this kind of external or book-related stimulation that you get from 448 as well. Um, how do you balance all these different kind of information delivery systems, I suppose? Um, yeah. What was the main difference between that particular experience and Xiaoyi's experience? So I think for City of Lost Things, you are you are it's you go out. Uh, you start off in Drama Box. There's a little prologue. Uh, there's uh, kind of a framework for the piece, and then you're allowed to go to whatever location you wish to go to with a little suitcase full of kind of hints and prompts. Um, and you spend some time in that space of your choosing before you come back at a very at a determined time to Drama Box for a finale or closure where everyone takes part in a, in a collective group activity and it involves some very structured participation. Um, so that was kind of the goal. Whereas I think 448, the journey is a lot more open. You, you can kind of 
take as long as you wish mm-hmm. and the relationship is with yourself. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, it's very much a very... Introspective. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like you go deeper and true. deeper into your interiority yes. throughout the entire journey. And just to give people an, a sense of the text, I think the text and the book is a very important uh, spine to the entire experience. And it's also the poetry of the language. So each page, there are Chinese... Uh, the, so there are two languages that you can use to navigate your experience. Both appear on the same page at the same time. So it will be the Chinese text, then the English text below. And just to give you a sense of the poetry of the language, here is page 37. Door opens. Moist wind. Chattering schoolmates. Glimmering. Oh, the wandering spirits. And now I'm so afraid. I'm seeing... I'm hearing, I don't know who I am. Eyes open, heart suffocates, the beast deep inside my abdomen. So that's an example. And the rest of the book is uh, equally poetic language, some of which, are in, for those people who know 448 by Psychosis by Sarah Kane, are direct quotes or uh, quotations uh, or trans- translations of Sarah Kane's text. Yeah. So how was navigating the language like for the both of you? Do you read both Mandarin and English? Or do you read predominantly one track? And how was that experience like? Uh, I read read predominantly English um, just to get a sense of the the kind of differences or if there, if there could be any nuances in the language, I tried to read the Mandarin but because of limitations in my Mandarin, I gave up after a, kind of a few sentences. But I do think that the translation is not direct. So uh, obviously the experience is going to be different. Um, with, with English, it was pretty... Uh, maybe you could say less... The shades of colour are more monotonous. I'm not sure. I mean, given that some, some of it were direct quotes from uh, 448 Psychosis. Uh, so the language that, that, that I think were, uh, was used to write the parts that were not direct quotes actually were pretty reminiscent of, of some of Sarah King's language as well. Yeah, so I got a pretty... Uh, uh, I, I, got, I got a very poetic journey, but the the kind of colour was quite similar throughout. It's quite clear. It's also like his emails that he sent out before. Mm. It was also bilingual. So there's the English component, then the Chinese component, and they're both on the same page. Uh, And sometimes reading both, it's quite clear that he wrote the Chinese first. And there's this attempt to translate it into English. Uh, And like what Jocelyn says, sometimes there's a bit that is... The poetry of the language is lost in yeah. the act of translation itself. I completely agree. I found the, the Chinese really evocative. And I think often when Chinese makes a transition into English, it can come across as clunky or, or mm. sometimes the poetry feels forced. Whereas in the original language, it's really nuanced and there's some beautiful kind of images or, or different shades. I mean, the same passage that you read, um, I mean, it, it, there's a kind of staccato kind of rhythm and, and 
to and rhyme to the kind of meter that is very different from the English. And I and so much so that when reading his emails to us, I felt kind of compelled to respond in Chinese, even though it's it's my definitely my much weaker, <laughs> infinitely weaker language. But I felt like a completely different person writing to him in Chinese. It was very emotive, it was very metaphorical. And it was like a part of myself I didn't know existed in writing. Yeah. So uh, another question I have is also, because this particular experience is so dependent on your engagement with the text and words, uh, I'm just wondering whether you have heard from peers who have experienced the piece or for yourself, whether there were any difficulties in engaging or being introspective because it demanded so much of your attention to language and text. For it, so it privileges a certain way of experiencing the piece that some people are perhaps more adept at and some people are less... You know, the reason why we go to a theatre space is perhaps because we don't have the capacity to read attentively yeah. or over mm. long duration of time and this performance demands that from you yeah. mm. uh, w- without scaffolding it in the in, in the description for the piece like when you purchased the ticket you didn't know that you were getting yourself involved in an experience that requires you to navigate your path reading a book Yeah. so I just wonder how that is like yeah I think I mean I suppose I, I took to it as a, someone who would identify as a reader and a writer. And, and so for me, I think what I took away from this piece and what reverberates with me the most is the writing of it and the correspondence of it. Whereas others, I think, may have had less patience to sit down and craft a letter. And, and also I went alone. And I was thinking of people who went in groups. And that, I, I mean, that could also be a different kind of experience, not necessarily a negative one. But there were groups of people who were like, oh, this feels like therapy. I, I don't know if I want to do <laughs> this, you know. And, and in, in, this is theatre, not therapy. I, heard, I overheard someone saying, like, like I, 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 who couldn't quite grapple with kind of the confiding nature of the writing. And then it was a different separate demographic of people who I think really wanted to try whiskey. And so they were all in the private room like discussing the kinds of whiskey they had ordered. Um, and, and that was the excitement for them instead of the introspection of the piece. But I think, so I think, yeah, I, it does privilege a kind of very quiet, flaneur-like response. And I don't know if everyone felt primed to give it. Um, and I think for me, because I had corresponded with L. I find I found those the the most the moments that I cherish I think from this piece where you you are asked to write a postcard to a woman in your life whom you love it could be a happy moment or a sad moment and so I chose to write a, a happy one because a very good friend of mine had just gotten married and so it was a very celebratory postcard about our relationship and how excited I was for her because we're good friends with um with her and her now spouse and I left the postcard and I took up the one that had been left there and it was also about a best friend getting married but completely different now about someone who was sad that their relationship had diverged somewhat and missed 
the conversations they had in the past and it was this like blinding resonance I was like wow I don't know if this was planned or it was really it was slightly creepy and uncanny okay but yeah that for me was the moment the only moment in the production where I got to speak to another audience member Uh, through a proxy of Xiao Yi's choreography Uh, and I felt that moment for me was really the biggest issue uh, because it really is serendipitous. It depends on who is the person before you. So the structure of the game goes like this. You leave your postcard on a small little easel that is on the piano yeah. in the bar and whoever, and you take the postcard that somebody before you has left on the easel as per the instructions. So this sets up a situation where and you have the option not to exchange your postcard. So if you read the other person's postcard and you don't think it's, <laughs> it's deserving of yeah. being exchanged, then you can take your own postcard. And this sets up a situation where... Uh, so, for example, when I reached, I wrote this long postcard to my mom and I, I invested so much in it and I reached the piano and I turned over the card that somebody left and it's uh, something like well, I too too or something like that or too too <laughs> I, I need I love, I love too too basically yeah, yeah I love too too which is apparently after speaking to friends left there for an, uh, an, uh, a really long time because nobody wanted to exchange it oh, so okay. and, and for me that being the only point where I talked and communicated with another audience member that sets up or uh, a sort of expectation yeah. or is investing a lot in that particular moment and for me that moment didn't come through yeah mm. yeah 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 it it's I mean even now I'm like oh I had, we had such differing kind of experiences of this I had such a profound moment a view of two women's friendships <laughs> and then you were you were stuck with a kind of so there's the sense. Sentence. Oh, yeah. There was a. There was a. Honestly, to be absolutely candid, there was this sense of betrayal. Yeah. Mm. Because it was about one and a half hours into the performance when I reached that point, and you are slowly scaffolded as an audience member to invest and to be even more slowly introspective, and that moment just transports you out of that space and reminds you that some people are not taking the experience seriously at all, yeah. and there's this sense of betrayal. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. really impacted how I remembered the experience of mm-hmm. the piece. Yeah, yeah. I, I have slightly different. Uh, so also, uh, uh, it didn't quite work for me that particular uh, uh, part of the performance, but for different reasons. It was because I wrote a also pretty personal note and I wrote my name on it, not knowing that what the next step of the game would be. So when I got to that next step and realized that, oh, so you're meant to exchange it uh, with someone else's. I just, I didn't want to because I didn't feel comfortable mm. doing Whereas if I had known before, I would not have written my name and it would have been fine. So yeah, that was just one, one thing, one consideration that, that didn't, really, didn't really work out for me. Yeah. yeah, and it reminds me that we really can't, as much as... Uh, your emergency stairs might hope that their audience members are fully invested into the work. You can't account for variables such as these where people yeah. you know, mm. discount a, an interaction that could have such import for someone else. So I also wonder, you know, how do we how do we get that kind of level of engagement? Does the work deserve this amount of engagement with it? Or mm. perhaps someone felt maybe it wasn't 
this work wasn't worth yeah. their time to invest in that way. I also knew people who, after a certain point, they couldn't go on. Mm. They couldn't bring themselves to go deeper uh, because of just the way they are emotionally feeling that day, that emotional state that they feel they are not comfortable to invest further. Uh, and unfortunately, the journey demands that out of you. And once you choose not to invest, there's no other solution. There's no way you can find another strategy. There's no alternative route to experiencing the peace. So I guess as a practitioner, I think about scaffolding and thinking about levels of participation and the option to opt out. And mm. what, what is that option like? And similarly, like what you mentioned on missing, there was this sense where at the end of the experience of missing, everybody comes together. And for me, that's central to a theatrical experience, the social relation to another being in the space. That is not the performing artist. Mm. That is not Xiao Yi. That is not looking into his eyes. And I felt that was lacking in this particular piece where after I go through the journey, ultimately I still... I, maybe this is probably the intention, utterly isolated in a crowd. Then for me, then what is the point of theatre? And what is a theatrical experience uh, if it leaves me feeling utterly alone? Uh, and like what I was mentioning to Jocelyn, whether there's a possibility of scaffolding in a certain way so that there's a decompression space or somewhere to process the aftermath of this performance in a choreographed way. So it's not accidental. It's not just, let's go out to supper after the experience and talk about it, where it's incidental and accidental. It can be built into the scaffold of the performance itself. And this is particularly necessary for 448 because it demands for you to go into a really deep, emotional, introspective space that can be quite scary. And I'm sure the organisers are aware of it. Yeah, and mm. I, I was thinking about, we, we mentioned a little bit, you know, about the little sticker that they paste on the final page of of the book with um, the hotline for uh, Samaritans of Singapore. Um, and that place that you go to can be quite dark, especially if you are someone who struggles with uh, recurring or chronic mental health issues and I, I do wonder about some of the options where you are asked if you hate yourself to go onto the rooftop of the mm. Esplanade and then f isolate someone in the crowd and imagine if you mm. were them and once again building on that kind of isolationist stance that this piece have it, it, it can bring you down a really dark mm. tunnel so come to think of it yeah I mean I, I hadn't realised that in the weeks and after 448, what I've been craving and what I've been speaking to everyone about is like, oh, how did you feel like after 448? Because I desired that kind of um, shared connection with someone else that I didn't have on the route that I felt like, uh, what did everyone else feel like, you know, after coming to this conclusion? What were their journeys like? And, and I don't know, perhaps this is, perhaps this is podcast is it for us. I'm not sure. <laughs> This is our communal space <laughs> communal to, out to decompress. What we decompress after this, after this yeah. production. I no, but I guess it. that's the impact of a of a really significant performance. It's yeah. definitely a game changer. There hasn't been a production like that in Singapore yeah. that mm. engages all these strategies uh, to engage to provoke, I guess, mm. a response in the audience mm. uh, and. 
hopefully it's the beginning of more explorations to come. It's a very invigorating as a practitioner, yeah. you know, to see that this is a possibility. And it challenges me to think how I can do differently and how can I can do better. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think we were, we were talking a little bit earlier about uh, how some of the, I mean, how we seem to be seeing more participatory performances that are also introspective uh, recently, right? And uh, I mean, Zuhan yourself, you yourself did uh, Ketamite not long ago. So, but I guess the difference w would, was that this, in this case, 448, it was really a very personal and uh, solo experience, uh, which, is, which, is, um, the, which is what we are kind of, kind of grappling with. La, yeah, right? yeah, really exploring the notion of the audience member as solo yes. performer mm. and how do you get someone to enact and perform in this way for themselves. Um, I think it's also mm. explored in, in, in other participatory works, but this is really kind of a singular journey. So I'm, I'm yeah. curious to see how other practitioners or Xiao himself might continue to explore this kind of methodology and refine it and mm. see how they can best structure mm. and support um, maybe newcomers to this form mm. in terms of spectators, yeah. how, how you can support their journey through a work. Um, I think we have to wrap up for now. I really feel like we could talk for another hour on this. Thank you so much, uh, Zohan and Justin, for joining me. We're actually members of Arts Equator's Critics Reading Group and this podcast is also a part of that program. Thank you very much and have a good day. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah.